with me to Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 down to verse 56 today as we work through the first chapter and a half of Luke's gospel account of the coming of Christ and his advent uh, during this advent season. Our passage picks up where we left off. We left off with Zechariah and Elizabeth receiving word that Elizabeth would give birth in her old age to a baby, John, who would be the one who would prepare the way for Messiah, fulfilling all sorts of prophecies from the Old Testament. And now we move from Zechariah and Mary, or Zechariah and Elizabeth, with Zechariah being mute because of his lack of belief at first hearing of God's word. We move to Mary, where Gabriel, the same angel, goes to give an announcement to her six months later. And so we now have the scene where Mary uh, has the announcement of Jesus' birth made to her. Then she goes and visits Elizabeth. And we have one of the most wonderful um, connections between uh, two women who could really only understand each other's situation like they could. Um, And it's a beautiful picture of their fellowship together. And there are many, many things here for us uh, to chew on, to consider, to contemplate, meditate about throughout this Advent season. Please keep your Bibles open. To Luke 1, starting at verse 26, I'll just read to verse 45, but we'll go to verse 56 during our time together. You can find that on page 855 or 856 in your pew Bible if you need it. Hear now God's word. This is his inspired word, so we know therefore it is inerrant. It is completely trustworthy and sufficient for all that we need in faith and practice. This is God's word starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, 
when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we give you praise for sending Jesus. We are amazed with the manner in which you chose to send him. You used the lowly and the humble to magnify your name. Lord, help us to believe your promises afresh. Help us to know that with you nothing is impossible. Send your Holy Spirit so that we might know the truth of your word and be changed by it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every year at the same time, I go through this similar puzzlement. I know the theological answer, but I still go through it. I'll be standing in a store somewhere or wherever it may be during the Advent season, and a Christmas song comes on, a hymn or a carol. And you know of all songs that were ever penned by in Christian history, the deepest, most Christocentric, gospel-laden are those. And I'm in Target, and nobody knows what's being said. It just eats at me, because I hear any song, I analyze the words. I wish I could be that person who just, I don't listen to the words, mom or dad. You know that. I'm not able, though. And and I'm sitting in Target, and I'll hear this, you know, oh, come all ye faithful playing, and wonder why is it that people cannot grasp, why are they so deaf to what is being said here? Just the size of it all. Every year I try to go to a live performance of the Messiah. I went again uh, with Sherry this year to the Kansas City, uh, Kansas City Symphonies and the, and the choirs. And it was tremendous as it usually is. Now I'm always, I always feel a little bit better because I know a few people, at least one member of our church and one of the, the teachers in our school. So I know there's a couple born again people there singing these words. How could you sing Messiah, which is a covenantal trek through the scripture that culminates with Jesus as the king of the universe. How do you go through that and not be moved by it? What he went through so we could be saved and he could reign forever and ever. Behold the Lamb of God, they sang, that takes away the sin of the world. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. How do you sing that and not just be moved by it? No, no musical work moves me like this one does. And if you know me, I have an eclectic taste when it comes to style. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the, devil, the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's it. You have to be made alive. That's ultimate resurrection picture. But there's a spiritual resurrection that must happen. For every person, for them to grasp the words that Scripture declares. And what we have with these two women is a picture of a wonderful response. One that should not be very different from what our response would be when we hear that Christ is declared to be the Messiah again. When we hear that good news of who Christ is and that he has come, we should have a similar response. Worthy is the lamb that was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. You've got to be moved by that. If you hear that, you are moved by that if you're regenerate. You have to be regenerate. You have to be born again. And so we come to this passage in this story where you see the right response of both Elizabeth and Mary to this news. Yes, it's very personal. 
the part they'll play in it. But what you'll notice is they don't focus on the baby. That's amazing. I mean, two women whose lives have been completely altered in a way they can't even fathom. But their focus is on what the baby will grow to do. And that's where the praise comes. The text before us shows the right response to the declaration that Jesus is Messiah. Joyous praise is the reaction to realizing that Jesus is the Christ. Let's look at the episode here, starting at verse 26, where the angel Gabriel has now come to Mary. I hope you all remember back to last week when he came to Zechariah and how that went. Um, There was lots of pomp around that. I mean, it was at the temple, it was at the burning of the incense, it was to a priest, an elderly priest, a godly priest, but everything about it was like you'd probably expect an angel to appear. This is different. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we only think of Nazareth, or we know it well, because we've been reading the Bible long enough to hear it over and over again, but it's not thought of well at this time frame at all. It's not thought of at all, in fact. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, lived near Jerusalem. Mary lives about 100 miles north in Nazareth. Now, not to be rude, but Ken Hughes says it so I can say it. Mary was a young nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth. I mean, that's exactly what Nazareth was. If you were to pick some, someone of consequence to do something important in America, you might pick them to come from New York City or from Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or Dallas or some big city that everybody knows. Not Buttermilk, Kansas. And by the way, there is a Buttermilk, Kansas. I looked it up. In Buttermilk, Kansas is like where Mary came from. And Gabriel goes to Mary to pick her because that's who God chose for this assignment, for this calling. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. We could surmise she was a young teenager, 13-ish, that was common in those days. And they could be betrothed for some time. Two families could arrange uh, for their son and their daughter to be married. It could have been a long betrothal, and we don't know. But here we have this case, the virgin's name is Mary. And Luke wants to be very careful to say that she had not been married and had not had marital relations. He, he notes this twice. It's very important that this be part of the facts of who Jesus is. Gabriel goes to this young woman with another announcement, as he has been assigned to do before. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, favorite is an important word to analyze. It comes from the Greek word charis, which is the word we get from which we get grace. Um, there are different kinds of favor one can show. But grace is something deeper than just, just, uh, just casting up someone's favor on someone for no reason, no connect. It has to do with showing someone who doesn't deserve the favor, favor. Unmerited favor is what is spoken of here. You have got God's favor in this form. This, this high, it's a commitment of God to be gracious to you. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you is a most powerful expression or pronouncement. It comes throughout the scriptures. And think of some of the people that you know or have heard this said about. And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord made all that fell into Joseph's care prosper. Multiple times it's said about Joseph. The Lord was with David, the king. Uh, the Lord was with Solomon. Uh, the Lord was with Hezekiah, the king. 
It's a common phrase that means God is about to do something through a person. And the Lord is with you, is what the angel said. And of course, what would her response be? Similar to Zechariah, right? She was greatly troubled. But notice what she's greatly troubled about. Zechariah was troubled by Gabriel, as any of us would have been. But Mary, this young teen who's called to this, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. They're not in the temple now. This isn't a place you might come across Gabriel, the ancient Gabriel, known of in the book of Daniel. Now remember, you have Mary, who's a young Jewish girl in a town with a strong synagogue. We know this for sure. She grew up hearing scripture. Uh, she is immersed in scripture. And you know how it is. Really, the younger you are and the more you're exposed to that, the more you remember of it. It's fresh to her. So she knows her Bible. And so she hears this greeting and she's trying to discern what kind of greeting it is. Not like, what is this? But what kind is it? Knowing there are different kinds. I mean, there's a depth of her understanding we shouldn't underestimate. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, assuring her of God's grace to her. And he goes right into, right into what her call will be. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Imagine this young unmarried teenager hearing this. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, in fairness, she doesn't know if this, how this will happen. That, that's the issue for her. Not that it won't happen, but how will this happen? Verse 32. He will be great. Whoa, wait a minute. Did, did he say that he will be great? I, only God is great. Every is, Israelite knows this. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Not a son of the Most High, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, all, his, all her Bible trivia bells are going off. Uh, I know what this is said about. This is the covenant made to David. We're looking for that restoration, and the Herods are not it. But this will be it. And, and furthermore, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not a reign that goes for 30 years, 32 years, as long as Hezekiah is near 40, or, or Uzziah's and die. Forever. And his, of his kingdom, there will be no end. These, this is eternal language. And Mary is taking it all in. I mean, all this is coming at her as this angel speaks to her. Now, do you notice what's said about the baby in Mary's womb that's similar to what was said to Elizabeth about the baby in her womb? Do you remember verse 15 back from last week? He, John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. But notice what's said to Mary now about Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. Make no mistake, a young woman, yes. But the gravity of this, she'd feel that weight. All that's being said. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The lines of powerful kings may enjoy dynasties that last millennia, but none forever. The reign of this king, forecasted to come from Mary, would not just have his house rule forever, he will reign forever. This is a weighty announcement on young Mary. And of course, Mary very understandably asks the question, and I know what a bunch you're going to be thinking when you hear this. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel doesn't, he doesn't scold her or discipline her. He goes right into the explanation. The angel answered, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Why is it that she did not receive the rebuke that Zechariah received? Here she's asking questions about what was said from God's mouthpiece, Gabriel. But I want you to pay close attention, and I think you'll grasp this. There are two reasons why we know she asked the question in faith, whereas Zechariah did not. Now, one reason is because Elizabeth later says, blessed are you who believe what you were told. You believe God's word when you heard it. So we know she believes. She believes at this moment. We have that uh, working in the background. But if you didn't know that, look at the particular question she asks, and you can see it. Back in verse 13, the promise from the angel to Zechariah was, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The word of God from Gabriel, the mouthpiece of God, goes. And then what does Zechariah say? How shall I know this? Okay, God's word went out, and there it is. He's saying, how shall I know this? And the angel's like, I am speaking in the presence of God. I am Gabriel. It's God's word. In other words, Zechariah's saying, how do I know God's word is true? That's the problem. That's not what happens in the case of Mary. After Mary was told that she would conceive and bear a uh, the Messiah, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Okay, this is God's word. How will it happen? Not, not, there's no doubt that it will happen. How will it happen? And that's a fair question, right? For Mary to ask, it's not one in disbelief. What a difference. It's subtle, but you see it, and then it's confirmed by what Elizabeth says later. And the angel answers by explaining how the Holy Spirit will conceive this child in her womb. And to confirm or to give her encouragement, verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. This is her old, old cousin who should not have been able to have children anymore. And she was pregnant, and that was a way to show to Mary, God is moving, he's going to do this. And the verse that comes next, so powerful, so encouraging in its context, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, what does that mean? Just don't take verse 37 out and just, nothing's impossible with God. I mean, anything I want is impossible with God. That's not what it means. It's saying, here's God's will, here's what it's declared to be. And even though nature speaks against that or human reason speaks against that, God declared what his will is and nothing is impossible with God when it's his will. That's the theology of it. Now, that's very encouraging to us, though, because there are many things we don't know about. We're supposed to pray for those things agreeable to God's will. That's good biblical counsel. But you and I know we don't, we don't have an insight about what his will is all the time. Now we have his word and we look to it and we try to test our desires and the things we're asking God for against the word of God and, and we craft our prayers according to the word. That's one way we kind of screen them. But there are many things we don't know God's will to and we, we, for and we pray for them. And if we pray for those things agreeable to his will. He'll either change our will about those things if it's not his will, or we should keep praying for them. And think of all the ways and all the things that you may think are impossible now. It could be that wayward child. It could be a spouse. It could be some health issue, some financial crunch, whatever it may be. Do you think there's no way in which uh, there could be some, any kind of fix to this? But if it's God's will, we pray for God's will, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing, even the hard human heart, God can turn to flesh. And he does all the time. He did it with us. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful assurance. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
The text again before us shows these right responses to the declaration that Jesus is Messiah. And here we have this joyous praise when Elizabeth and Mary see each other for the first time in a long time, it seems, starting at verse 39. And in this, you have a profession of faith in Christ by both women, Elizabeth especially up front, and a pronouncing a blessing, uh, acknowledging what God has done. Verse 39, in those days, so sometime around the time that Gabriel made the announcement to her, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. That's 100 miles away, a young teen traveling there. Now, it's not to say she went alone. We don't know that. But it's still a long trip for someone to, to take, at her age especially. So she goes down to that area near Jerusalem, and she entered, verse 40, the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is such a beautiful and pure picture of the joy that comes between believers when they have a similar experience of God's grace and they come together to celebrate that. Verse 30, 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we know she's filled with the Holy Spirit. What she says is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The Holy Spirit upon Elizabeth gave her this response of praise when in the presence of God's grace working itself through this woman upon this woman Mary. No different than anybody else. It doesn't change Mary into someone else. She's not worshiping Mary. She's simply worshiping God about the blessing he's poured out upon her before, but now to Mary as well. Blessed are you among women. You get to carry the baby who will be the long-forecasted redeemer. I mean, how blessed can one be? How much more can one be blessed? And blessed is the fruit of your womb, the one who will come to be that faithful servant so long Look for in Israel among God's people. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how true her words really were. Mary was not sinless. Mary was not a mediator between us and God. Mary is not worshipped here. These are just the words of a true blessing about the favor that God showed Mary to have her carry the Savior of the world. Blessed is Mary among all other women. Verse 43 continues the beautiful meeting. And why is it grant, this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, see there's a profession of faith from Elizabeth. She knows who is carried in Mary's womb, the Lord, her Lord. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Elizabeth could feel John's response to Jesus. The first Christ-preaching pulpit of the New Testament was Elizabeth's womb. When John leapt at hearing or knowing whatever the Spirit moved upon him, that he was in the presence of Christ. If there was any doubt about why the angel didn't discipline Mary for asking the question, look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What a sacred meeting between two sisters in Christ. Two sisters who experienced a similar grace. Nobody else could really un completely understand it. And they came together and did what? They joined together in singing praise to God because they had received grace. 
That is exactly why the church comes together all the time. We should have an unusual experience compared to the world that we have experienced grace in a way that nobody else knows. For all our differences, we all have been saved by grace. And so we come together when we worship or when we come together with just a few of us friends or a bigger group of us or whatever, we come together to enjoy each other's fellowship because it's bound together by the common grace, the common saving grace that we have through Christ. That's a call to all Christians to consider. We should always regard such communion as sacred together. J.C. Ryle writes exactly about this. As he's preaching through this passage, listen to what J.C. Ryle said. We should always regard communion with other believers as an eminent means of grace. It is a refreshing break in our journey along the narrow way to exchange experience with our fellow travelers. It helps us and it helps them, and so it is mutual gain. Ryle goes on. It is the nearest approach that we can make on earth to the joy of heaven. As iron sharpens iron, so does the countenance of a man his friend. We need reminding of this. The subject does not receive sufficient attention, Ryle argues. And the souls of believers suffer in consequence. There are many who fear the Lord and think upon his name, and yet forget to speak often to one another. First, let us seek the face of God. Then, let us seek the face of God's friends. If we did this more, and were more careful about the company we keep, we should oftener know what it is to feel filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to look at verse 46 and following. Mary's song of praise. It's not on the insert, so be looking at your copy of the scriptures. About this passage, J.C. Ryle wrote, These verses contain the Virgin Mary's famous hymn of praise, the Magnificat as it's known. Mary's song, starting at verse 46. In the prospect of becoming the mother of our Lord, Ryle wrote, next to the Lord's prayer, perhaps the few passages before us in Scripture, uh, none are better known than this. John Calvin said, now follows a remarkable and interesting song of the Holy Virgin, which plainly shows how eminent were her attainments in the grace of the Spirit. A young woman who knew Scripture and was filled with the Spirit called to do this work, now as she speaks, she weaves together all sorts of scriptural truths. Scholars have tried to figure out, what reference is this? What reference is that? It's perfectly woven together multiple places in scripture. How much is captured? It's like, it's like a psalm from the Old Testament come to life here through the words of Mary, seen through the work of Christ. Hear it as I read. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant Israel, his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What a psalm. She praises God for his salvation, 
his mightiness, his holiness, his mercy, his strength, his power, or his ability to humble the proud or the seemingly powerful, the provisions he gives to his people, the help he gives in time of trouble, and his faithfulness as a perfect, perfect covenant keeper. And notice he doesn't go to Moses' covenant there at that moment. She goes back to Abraham's covenant, where the purity of the gospel is seen so clearly and refers to that as the reason for her calling. He's fulfilling covenant now through her. She gets this. All our kids at age 12 and 13 should know covenant theology like that, and I'm serious. They should understand the flow of redemption the way Mary gets it here. Mary can see her humble estate and recognize God's unmerited favor, his grace, and she sings praise to him. And please notice very clearly, this is not someone saying she should be a mediator in some fashion. That's not what verse 46 says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. She needs that Savior too. She gets that clearly, and it's there, obviously, in the passage before us. He who is mighty has done great things for me, verse 49. Calvin has some good things to say about this. Granted, he writes in a period of time right against Roman Catholicism, where the 500 year of the, the Reformation, so it makes sense to connect this, especially when we're talking about Mary. Because one of the big problems with the church in the medieval time is the way it got things out of whack and out of balance regarding Mary. And so Calvin was trying to correct it. Listen to what he says. Now observe that Mary makes her happiness to consist in nothing else but in what she acknowledges to have been bestowed upon her by God and mentions as the gift of his grace, I shall be reckoned as blessed, she says, through all ages. She's not blessed in herself and in her own makeup. It's because God has put his grace upon her by having her bear God the Son. But Calvin goes on. Was it because she sought his praise by her own power or exertion? On the contrary, she makes mention of nothing but the work of God. Hence, we see how widely the papists differ from her, who idly adorn her with their empty devices and reckon almost as nothing the benefits which she received from God. They miss the main point of what she's helped the people of God with. They heap up an abundance of magnificent and very presumptuous titles such as queen of heaven, star of salvation, gate of life, sweetness, hope, and salvation. Little Calvin note this time, there are like 15 other titles given to her. Calvin says none of these modes of expression, it is evident, proceeded from the Lord. All are disclaimed by the Holy Virgin in a single word. When she makes her whole glory to consist in the act of divine kindness, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. God is magnificent. Finally, Calvin says, if it was her duty to praise the name of God alone, who had done to her wonderful things, no room is left for the pretended titles, which come from another quarter. Besides, nothing could be more disrespectful to her than to rob the Son of God of what is his own, to clothe her with sacrilegious plunder. The Song of Mary is magnificent. The Song of Mary is soaked with redemptive hope through Christ. The Song of Mary reads like a psalm from the Old Testament, but with the complete picture of fulfillment in view. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations shall call me blessed. She sees the magnitude of the baby that she will bear. Uh, he will be the long-forecasted Savior, and she will bear him. 
She describes God's blessings through Christ in very covenantal language. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I mean, it reads like a page out of Isaiah. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She recounts God's consistent approach to exalting himself through the humble. Here, on the eve of redemption, God takes a humble servant girl to bring the Savior of the world forth. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Past tense about something that's still just about to happen, spoken of so certain, certainly. Why? This is the past perfect version in the language. So it's spoken of in past tense with certainty because God said that. It's the, some call it the prophetic future. It's going to happen. So we write it in the past as though it has happened in this baby that's coming forth from her. She's so sure. She's not focusing on the baby part of things. We spend a lot of time with that on Christmas, and I get it. But Mary and Elizabeth were focusing on what the baby would do, what the baby would accomplish. She got the picture of redemptive history tied together in this baby. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The Abrahamic covenant was about to be fulfilled through the fruit of her womb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Did you know? Yes, she knew. I'm not saying she knew all the details of what would come about, all the pain that would await her, but she knew the weight of who she was carrying. And she had the weight of the world on her shoulders for this. Make no mistake, in verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So it's perhaps to the time that John is born that Mary stays with Elizabeth. By this time, she's done with the first trimester, so she goes back to where she came from in Nazareth, already showing. I mean, she was obviously pregnant once she got there. How, people no doubt wondered. But she had been gone for three months. She wasn't around Joseph. They weren't physically near each other. The text before us shows the right response to the declaration that Jesus is Messiah. And it's joyous praise. That's the reaction. And brothers and sisters, really four weeks of Advent, and this is true of a lot of our times of worship, should be. It's just an opportunity to give special praise to God that he kept his promises. And it's also to be reminded that if he kept those promises... He's keeping all the other ones, and he's coming again. We can be sure of this because he came the first time. In all the ways he did, it almost seems more complex how he decided to do it the first time rather than how he'll do it when he comes again. And if you can believe this, it's because God's given you regeneration and you can, then certainly you could look for the day that he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Philip Ryken says, in summarizing this passage, or just the redemptive work of Christ in connection to this humble picture we have before us, at the end of the gospel comes the greatest reversal of all. God the Son, who had once humbled himself to become a man, and then to endure the painful, shameful death of the cross, is raised from the dead in triumph, having humbled himself, and he is exalted. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are prompted to sing, especially this time of the year, with all these songs giving praise to you for sending your Son, our Savior. 
We sing, what child is this? And then the answer comes, thankfully, in the hymn. This child was Christ the King, whom the shepherds guarded and angels sang about. So indeed, we make haste this day to bring him laud and honor, the babe, the son of Mary, who is also our God and Savior, and who will one day come again. Pray this in his name. Amen. Let's be focused now upon our preparation for the Lord.